We are starting a new uh, series of messages today coming from um, the uh, gospel account given to us by John. John is the fourth evangelist, the fourth writer of a biography of Jesus. We don't know if he was chronologically the fourth or not. Uh, there's speculation about the, the ordering of the different uh, gospel accounts. But we know that there are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be spending the next several weeks looking at the fourth account of the gospel, the fourth account according to John. Um, and uh, if you if you look at them, you can see John is is very different um, from the other this, uh, the other gospel accounts. And one of the ways he's different is that he tells us what his purpose is. Um, the others, I'm sure, had similar purposes, but they don't say so. John says explicitly why he wrote his biography of Jesus, why he wrote the gospel according to John, and the reason is so that people would believe. He says, he says, the reason is so that you may come to trust in Jesus and that through your faith in Jesus, you may have eternal life. Now, later on in this series, we're going to hear what John means by eternal life, but it means a lot more than simply going to heaven when you die. Uh, for John, eternal life is a whole big idea all by itself. So we're going to be seeing that as we go through. But John tells us that's his purpose. He wants to tell you these things so that you may trust Jesus and have eternal life. He also says uh, near the very beginning of the the gospel, he says the reason that we should believe is so that uh, those those who do believe have the power to become children of God. So John gives us a purpose. Why is he why is he writing the gospel in the first place? Uh, one of the things I like about John's gospel is that he is very inviting. Um, it's easy when you read the the account that John gives to see ourselves um, because he's so he's so conversational. He keeps explaining what's going on in a way that invites us into it, almost like we're having a conversation. We see that today. Um, the the baptism of Jesus is the is the occasion in the church we're celebrating the baptism of Jesus, and all four gospel accounts include um, a, a story about how Jesus was baptized. But John's is interesting. Because the baptism, we don't see. He doesn't tell us about the baptism of John, uh, the, the John, the, uh, the baptism of Christ that John administers. Instead, uh, we're kind of like after the fact. John has just gotten done baptizing Jesus, and he's all excited. He says, "Hey, do you know what happened? Let me tell you what happened. I just baptized the chosen one of God. He's still here. He's in the crowd." He, um, I don't see him, but he's he's right around here somewhere. I just baptized the one that God told me to watch for. He says, he says, uh, he is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who's greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I've been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed. Then John said, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting on him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God called me, sent me to baptize with water. He told me, the one in whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus. So I testify that he is the chosen one of God. The way John writes this gospel, he invites us to be part of it, as if John is speaking to us, as if we, we didn't actually see the baptism. But John is explaining the significance to us so we can be part of this conversation. So I like John's gospel because it's very invitational and invites us to, to consider what's going on and how that affects us. Now John continues. He says the following day, Jesus, uh, John was again standing with two of his disciples. 
We don't know who they are. We're going to find out one of them is named um, Andrew. But John is there. John has his own disciples. He's a holy man. People have come to him, and they've said, John, teach us about God. So John's been doing that to some group of disciples, and two of them are with him right then. And Jesus walks by. John looks at uh, There he is, the one I was talking about. There he is, the Lamb of God. And when John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. And, you know, that sounds kind of like, you know, we're trading up. You know, we, we're done with you, John. We're, you know, it was nice, but, you know, it was, it was fun, but it wasn't real fun or whatever. But, um, but John's okay with that. The reason John pointed out Jesus is so that his disciples would follow him. And they do. And Jesus looks at them, saw them, looked around and saw them following. And he says, what is it you want? He says, what are you looking for? Isn't that a great question? I mean, imagine, imagine, after this service, you go out to your car, and there in the parking lot is Jesus, and he turns around, and he looks at you, and he says, what is it you want? What are you looking for? You know, this is, this is the, the, the reality of our, of our existence as humans. We want something. We want something that would make our lives different, maybe. This is, this is New Year's time, right? This is the time we think about our resolutions. Maybe all we're doing anymore is thinking about it because it's been a week. But maybe we're still, uh, maybe we're still, you know, <laughs> pursuing our resolution. That there's some part of our life, we want our life to be different. We want to look in the mirror and see something different. We want to, we want to lose 10 pounds or we want to stop smoking. We, we want to see something different than we see now when we look in the mirror. We want to get in a budget. We want to study harder in school. There's some change that we want to see in our lives. And so that's why we have New Year's resolutions. Or maybe, maybe the thing that is, that is actually on our heart is bigger than that. Maybe it's something that breaks our heart. Um, that there's something that, that brings tears to our eyes when we see it. We're driving around and we see the guy by the side of the street and he's got the sign and we tear up and we can't explain why. Maybe there's something in us where we just go, I want something to be different. I'm looking for something different. And Jesus asks these disciples, what is it you want? Well, the disciples don't really answer, or they do answer. I think that they answer in a way that probably we would, right? If Jesus asked that question, you might not immediately say, well, Jesus, here's what I want. Um, Instead, they say this. They say, where are you staying? And that sounds like maybe it's a deflection. I don't want to get into that. But I think what it really is, is it's a bid for intimacy. The psychologists talk about a bid for intimacy. It's, It's when people ask a question, and they're basically saying, can we have a real conversation? Uh, you know, when somebody comes up to you at work and they say, did you see the game, right? They're not asking, did you in fact watch the game? What they're saying is, hey, can we have a conversation? Can we have, can we work on our relationship by talking about the game together? That, that people do this all the time. We, we always have these bids for converse, uh, bids for intimacy in our lives. And Jesus recognizes that's what's going on. They're not going to give him a simple answer. Maybe they can't give him a simple answer. Maybe they don't know for sure and they need to unpack it themselves. But they say, let's talk. You know, let's have a conversation. Where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. 
So they do. And um, it says uh, that they, they stayed there that night. Um, it says it was four in the afternoon, and uh, they went to him with a place, and they remained with him the rest of the day. And then John tells us that then Andrew... Now, I don't know if that means later that night or there's another day in here. It's not clear. But he says, then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. So whatever it was they discussed, Andrew is excited, and he wants his brother to meet Jesus too. So he goes to find Simon, and he brings Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looks intently. It says he considered Simon. He appraised Simon. And he said, your name is Simon, son of John. I know who you are. But you will be called Cephas. And then John translates that Peter. Unfortunately, there's a little, uh, you know, you see in um, your, um, if you've got this in a Bible, it'll have footnotes. The program doesn't have the footnote. But it says, what does Peter mean? Peter means rock. It's a Greek word. So it's translated into Greek, but not into English. Peter means rock. And then we hear about another next day. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. So maybe um, he heard about he heard about Philip from Simon and Andrew. It does, it's not clear where Philip came into this. But Philip goes to look for Nathaniel, and he says, we found the very person that Jesus and the prophets wrote about. Now, actually, he didn't find anybody. Jesus went and found him, but that's okay. He says, I've found somebody I want you to meet the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, I doubt it if he's coming from Nazareth. Uh, uh, we, we will learn later in the, in the gospel that Nathaniel is from Cana. Cana's a village that's kind of down the slope of this, this uh, uh, kind of plateau area that, that Nazareth is on. They're in the better farming district than Nazareth, which is kind of up in the hills. So he's thinking, nobody from the hill country can possibly be worth much. We're down here in the flatland where, you know, the getting is good, and I can't really believe God really has much good to say about the people up in the hills. And Philip says, that's a wonderful theological objection, and I will go find the answer to it, and then I will come back and talk to you some more. Right? No, he doesn't. He doesn't, right? He doesn't fall for the, the here's my theological objection to the thing you've just told me, and until you answer this, I won't engage with you. Instead, Philip just says, well, I don't know about Nazareth. I don't know about all those tricky theological questions, but just come and see for yourself. And as they approach, Jesus says, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. A lot of scholars speculate, and I would boil it down by saying nobody knows exactly what Jesus is getting at. Is he being ironic? Is he actually saying this is the thing that that Nathaniel really um, strives to be in his life? Nobody knows for sure. But Nathaniel says, how do you know about me? And Jesus says, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Well, John left out the fig tree thing, so we don't know <laughs> what is he talking about. And again, scholars have tried to guess what, what was going on there. Uh, maybe Philip was having some kind of a um, some kind of a moment of awakening. He had some encounter with God there under the fig tree, and so he associates Jesus um, understanding of that with God. We don't know exactly what's going on. Whatever it was, it was compelling to Nathaniel, right? Nathaniel is the one who, 
who was convinced by this. And we may not be convinced. We may say, well, that was a coincidence, whatever. But Nathaniel says, Rabbi, he says, you are my teacher. I'm going to become your disciple as well. Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Now, what does he mean by that? He probably does not mean the same thing by son of God that uh, Christians in the 21st century mean by son of God. Um, this is probably more like the idea of the divine right of kings, that God wants there to be order on the world, so he picks some lucky people and says, you're going to be a king, and so they are the son. They've, they've got the hand of God on them. Um, and so he says, the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus says, do you believe this just because I told you about the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Well, greater how, Jesus? Tell me more. He says, I tell you the truth, you will all, you and the others um, in this group, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down in the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Jesus references this story from the Hebrew Scriptures where the patriarch Jacob discovers a thin place, uh, one of those places where it seems as if heaven and earth are closer together. He says, he says that he dreamt, at, when he was at this place, he dreamt that there was a stairway or a ladder. Um, sometimes people talk about Jacob's ladder. It's that same idea. That there's this uh, connection point between heaven and earth, and the angels of God are able to go up and down here because this is a place where heaven and earth come into contact. And Jesus says, when you said, Son of God, you were thinking, you know, the title that kings give themselves, Son of God, Pay attention to him, do what he says, because he's God's um, designated authority. He says, you're going to see more than that kind of son of God. You're going to see a thin space. You're going to see one of those places where heaven and earth come into contact. And in fact, you're looking at the place where heaven and earth come into contact. You're looking at the one in whom heaven and earth are both vested. You're looking at someone who is both God and man. He says, this is what you will see. As I consider this passage, I think about how unique each of these four men. And just in just a few verses, John is able to show us how each of them has different concerns. And each one of them has their concerns addressed by Jesus. Each one of them would have answered that question, what is it you want? What is it you're looking for? They would have answered it differently. But Jesus tells them, come, follow me, and you will see that. You will see that thing that brings tears to your eyes. You will see the different person you want to see in the mirror. You will see it. And you will see more than this. You will see the place where heaven and earth come together. One of the things I like about this, did you notice how John tells us Jesus decided to go to Galilee? When I think about Jesus, I think about, you know, Jesus put this plan into place, you know, 67 billion years ago, and he's got it all figured out. He knows, you know, who's going to win the game today. He, Jesus knows everything, has got it all figured out. But John tells us he decided to go to Galilee. That he is changing things up. And I, I, I wondered, why would he do that, right? Why would Jesus need to do that? And I think the answer is because these are the disciples that were standing next to John. And for maybe a different set of disciples, if there had been four disciples instead of two, or if there had been two different disciples there, then what would have worked 
with them wouldn't have worked with these two. So for these two, he says, let's go back to Galilee. Let's go back to the region of your hometown. Let's go back to the place near Bethsaida and near Cana and near Nazareth. We're going to go back to the northern part of the country. So Jesus tailors his approach for the people that he's discipling. He says, come and see, and I will show you the thing you're looking for. And he says that to you. And he says it to me. He says, if you follow him, if you put your trust in him, you will see the thing you're looking for. You will see it in the mirror. You will see it when you drive your car and you see the man by the side of the road. You will see what it is you want to see. And more than that, you will see far more than you could ever imagine when you follow Jesus. Simon got a new name. Nathaniel got a new understanding of what good can come from Nazareth. Uh, We don't even know what Andrew and um, Philip saw, but it was enough that they had to go tell a friend about it. And we in the church are called to take up that same ministry, the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry of Andrew, the ministry of Philip, which is to tell people about the Jesus that we have found. Now, I know most people in churches don't consider themselves evangelists. They don't consider themselves effective evangelists for sure. But we're not called to make converts. All we're called is to point out the Jesus that we've encountered, to let people know that if they come and see, they will find what it is they're looking for. So I invite you to join in that tradition in the church, the tradition of John the Baptist and and Philip and Andrew, to invite people to say, come and see. This is the Jesus that I've encountered, and I am beginning to see the things in me and in the world that I wanted to see because of him. One One of the other things that strikes me about this is, did you notice how John keeps translating these words? He says, he tells us what rabbi means. He tells us um, what Messiah means. He tells us what Peter means, or Cephas means. The reason is John knows that intrinsically in the nature of this work, the nature of calling people to come and see, we're going to be dealing with people who don't get it, who don't understand, who are coming from a different background, who have a different understanding of God than we do. And so he says, translate what you know so that they understand it. Don't say, if they reach this plateau of spiritual uh, excellence, then they can understand too. He says, bring it down to them. Help them understand what it is they're doing. And remember the outsiders. So he's calling us as a church, first to be evangelists, but second of all, to remember the outsiders and to make what we do accessible to them. And I think beyond that, we are called to remember Jesus is on the move. John points out the moving Jesus. Jesus doesn't stop and say, hey, what's up, John? He goes by, and it's up to John to say, whoa, if we want to if we want to be with Jesus, we have to go because he's headed that way. We need to follow Jesus. Sometimes we're all outsiders together because we don't know where Jesus is going. We simply know that there he goes. I'll close with this. Today is the day in the, the church when we um, when we bring new officers into our uh, leadership. Um, we're going to be uh, reinstalling Ken on the uh, uh, council. 
and um, we'll be recognizing some of the other people that we have discerned as a body that God is calling to lead our church. People who will be for us what John the Baptist was for Andrew, what Philip was for Nathaniel. People who can say, there he goes, let's go that way. So I invite you to be in prayer for our leaders, to, to pray for our council, for our SPRC, for the, the representatives to our denominational bodies, um, to our nominating committee, that they will have good discernment to understand where God is calling this church. Because Jesus promises that if we trust him, if we come, we will see. We will see what we want, and more than that, we will see more than we could imagine. Let's be part of that journey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this account of the life of Jesus. And um, we pray, Lord, you would open it up to us to help us to understand not just what it meant for John or for his first hearers, but what it means to us, how we can be um, part of this story that John has begun, um, but that continues into our own lives. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.